The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, Episode 17, and on we go with the adventure of discovering how the world really works. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, has become a, a habit with me over the years is uh, people calling into my radio show would always say, so, you know, how are you? And, uh, of course, nobody really wants to hear that you've got a, a blister under one toe and a touch of tennis elbow and uh, uh, a slight twinge in your knee. No, that it's, it's almost a, uh, a convention uh, of social intercourse. How are you? And obviously, uh, on the air, any kind of a lengthy response is uh, a sure signal to listeners to turn off or switch stations. So uh, I, years ago, came up with an answer which I felt was, was true and, and real, but at the same time was pretty quick. And so whenever people would say, how are you? I'd say, couldn't be better. And that has always remained with me. And uh, from time to time, people will say, well, you know, do you really mean that? I mean, you know, who, who's got a life in which nothing could be any better? And uh, I answered and I said, look, uh, no question about it. Uh, there's plenty of things that could be better. I could get my hair back. Uh, I could win the lottery, although that's obviously questionable as to whether that is a true advantage, uh, given um, typically what seems to happen to uh, the majority of people who do win the lotteries. But uh, my point being, yes, certainly there, uh, you know, there are things that, that could be. However, all of those would sort of invoke miraculous powers. Uh, they would require... Uh, for me to draw down on whatever cosmic balance I might be fortunate enough to still have. And so when I say couldn't be better, in the natural order of things, in the way the world really works, couldn't be better, grateful, it's wonderful. And, and that is absolutely true, in addition to being a fairly quick answer that allows us to move on to uh, more important things. And so, uh, how am I doing? Couldn't be better. And uh, it, 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 it dawned on me that this actually has stood me in very good stead. It's something that's been very valuable for me indeed. Why? What is that? Well, um, what it does is adds to my reservoir of optimism. And so, uh, usually, you know, early in the day... Uh, you know, I have an opportunity. I'm either talking to somebody at the uh, at, at the coffee shop, or I'm talking to you. You know, almost invariably, uh, before the day gets too far underway, I usually have an opportunity to answer that very question, and I always answer it the same way. Thank you. Couldn't be better. How about you? And then they either give an answer, or they usually ask me something about why I say couldn't be better, and you know, it's usually an interesting little conversation. However. Every day when my own ears hear my own lips articulate the phrase, it couldn't be any better, or I couldn't be any better, uh, what that does is give me a good feeling. It fills me with a sense of, uh, of optimism for the day. And I cannot 
begin to describe how critical optimism is for a successful life, not only in business, but also in family and with friends. Uh, the fact is that, you know, life is too short to spend a lot of it with down people, with people who are gloomy and pessimistic. I mean, who wants to do that? And obviously, uh, if you're in business, then needless to say, you're in sales. That's unavoidable. And if you're in sales, then you need to connect with people. And if you need to connect with people, then you need to make it as pleasurable as you possibly can for them. And one of the most pleasurable aspects of meeting new people is meeting optimistic people, people who radiate a sense of enthusiasm and are positive and confident, but above all, a sense of optimism. A massively significant and, uh, and extremely valuable for business. As a matter of fact, there's a famous uh, study that was done by MetLife Insurance, not, not that long ago, by the way. So if you are interested, you'll have absolutely no trouble um, if you were to Google MetLife Insurance Study on Optimism, something like that, and uh, guaranteed you'll find it in no time. But uh, in summary, what was so amazing about this study was that MetLife realized, as, as any organization that uh, deals with a lot of salespeople, as MetLife does, that churning employees is incredibly costly. It takes you a certain amount of time to recruit somebody. It takes you a certain amount of money to hire somebody. It takes considerable time and money to train that person. And uh, when do they start being worthwhile? It's anybody who's hired anyone in their business already knows that uh, the new employee is not making you money from day one. He or she is costing you money from day one. And depending on the business and depending on how effective you are at integrating new employees, there comes a point, it might be a month or could be as far as six months down the road, where the employee finally is actually earning their keep. And then a little, by, a little while longer than that, and your employee is actually making a difference, putting something in your pocket as well. And so uh, MetLife realized that uh, churning through employees was costing them an absolute fortune and that a very high proportion of people they hired didn't stick with it because, you know, not everybody has been trained. Not everybody has the, uh, the ability to, to deal with sales and, uh, and not, not everybody has, has been helped to acquire the mental fortitude to, to do just that. So a lot of people left after, you know, spending six months or a year with a company, very expensive. And so they decided they had to come up with some way of determining in advance who was going to be a success, because those who were going to be a success would generally stay in the position and retain their jobs, and, and that would be good for MetLife and good for the employee. So uh, they tried to come up with various ways. They, uh, they tried to take a, a test group of people who had college degrees, and then they took a group of people who had no college degrees, and they were trying to find out, like, is having a degree advantageous? Is not. Turns out it didn't seem to be a factor. Uh, the same number of people succeeded and the same number of people failed in both groups, college and non-college. Then they tried to take people who were a little bit older, people who were a little bit younger, and that, too, didn't make very much of a difference. Anyway, to uh, cut a long story short, what they finally discovered was that the only reliable predictor of success in sales was optimism. They came up with a way, they, they employed an industrial psychology company to come up with a 
technique for measuring optimism, and uh, they discovered that uh, the, uh, the recruits that measured high on the optimistic scale totally outperformed by orders uh, those who were the very best up till that point of a random grouping. And so from then on, it became a standard part of MetLife's hiring procedure uh, to hire people who scored well on, uh, the, on the optimistic scale. Really uh, very important indeed. And, and you can think about it for yourself, and you realize that if you're in business, uh, you know that being optimistic, feeling a sense of optimism, is incredibly important. Uh, this is also true if you are getting married, if you are married, if you're uh, thinking of having children, raising children. In other words, uh, if you're involved in real life, then um, you need optimism. What are examples of people not involved in real life? Well, uh, I'll tell you that just as soon as we get back because not everybody is engaged in real life. I know you are, but not everybody is. So uh, I'll tell you just the examples. I'll tell you who the people are who are not involved, who don't live life r in reality. And uh, we'll, we'll do that just coming back. My website, uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay? Rabbidaniellappin.com is how to find me. And uh, you can make sure you subscribe to Thought Tools. That's one of the ways I keep you informed of uh, where I'm appearing. Uh, it also is a, a short spiritual uh, strategy that I provide once a week that you can use in different areas of your life. And uh, you can also reach me. There's a Contact Us tab on rabbidaniellappin.com. And I love hearing from you. I love hearing uh, your reactions to the podcast good or bad, a positive or negative, and also anything that you'd like to ask me or anything you'd like me to know. So uh, hang on right there because we're going to be back in just a moment. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. We've never fully paid for the mistakes of the past. When you overspend, you end up paying for that down the road. The bad economy in 2008, when Obama and everybody since then is saying, oh, it's doing great now. It's not. We've never actually fixed the problem. All we've done is spread them out with things like quantitative easing. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Here we are again, episode 16, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for being part of it as uh, I ask you, how are you doing? And uh, in response to the same question, I'm doing well. I couldn't be any better. Uh, so talking about uh, what sort of people are not involved in real life, I was saying that if you are a part of real life, then uh, you really want to learn how to make optimism your ally, how to make it part of your makeup. And you'll discover that it is every bit as important as your information technology uh, attributes, your computer, your, uh, your, your internet ability, all of those things that are essential to your business, uh, you will discover will, are also uh, equal to, to uh, optimism, just as valuable a, a tool needed. So uh, uh, something 
that you need if you are involved in real life. Who's not involved in real life? Well, uh, number one, if you are not really uh, intimately connected with other people, if you're not strong, strongly family connected, um, if, you, if you don't have a, a spouse, you don't have children, not deeply connected to parents or siblings, and there are many of us like that in the United States of America, many who uh, regrettably are, are not linked or, or strongly tied at all with, uh, with friends or, or at least with family. Friends, friends is a separate thing. I'm not talking about that. Family is uh, a very much of a factor. Um, so if you are single and uh, not particularly close with, uh, with, with parents, children, siblings, uh, then that would be one factor. Number two, if you are not involved in a money-making enterprise from which you could be fired. And that means, I'll, I'll be honest with you, that means if you are in a business in which there's incredibly strong union representation, uh, for instance, uh, m uh, many, many government agencies, uh, there's a real question then whether you are also deeply involved in the real business of living. Because the real business of living is that there, I there are consequences to bad behavior. And one of the great things about a normal for-profit business is that uh, if you behave badly, you get penalized. If you treat customers carelessly, uh, if you're slovenly, if you're rude, uh, if you're if you're providing less than real value for money and, and all the all the other things you know them as well as I do, uh, there are penalties. You pay the price for that, and that is a good, positive, healthy thing. It's not a healthy thing, as as appealing as it might seem to us, particularly if if we have troubles at work and we're in danger of losing a job or have lost a job, and you think to yourself, "My goodness." It sure would be great to have a position with a post office, perhaps, where uh, no matter, I mean, pretty much impossible to get fired. If you're a teacher in the city of New York, virtually impossible to get fired, even uh, for, for gross negligence and malfeasance. I mean, you can do some really bad things, and you still have your job. As a matter of fact, uh, the New York City schools actually have a room, they have a place for such teachers to show up because you still have to come to work. You, they just won't allow you in front of a class of children, but uh, you hang out with all the other teachers who have been defrocked, as it were, and you pick up your, your paycheck every two weeks. And you think to yourself, you know, that's, that's really got to be appealing, but it isn't really. It isn't good, and uh, it detracts from your happiness. It really does. It lowers your happiness quotient. I know that sounds bizarre because you think to yourself, my goodness, total job security, now that would make me happy. Wouldn't really, not over the long run. It actually wouldn't. And, uh, and, uh, and, and this is why I'm speaking about the need to learn how to engender optimism into your life. It's an incredibly powerful ally, whether it's in social family areas or whether it's in business areas, really, really important. And, uh, and why is that? Well, how you tackle a project, how you embark on a plan, how you proceed to the execution of a strategy, all depends on how deeply convinced you are 
about its ultimate success. When you feel strongly that this is going to work out, you throw yourself into it with total enthusiasm. More than that, you throw yourself into it with passion and zeal, and that makes all the difference. One of the examples I'm very fond of is how it was in uh, the month of May 1953 that uh, Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest, he and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay were the very first to ascend to the summit of Mount Everest. Uh, since then, how many have gone up uh, to Everest, do you think? Would you think it numbers in the tens or in the hundreds or the thousands? Uh, hundreds or thousands, it's a lot of people, so much so, by the way, that there is a littering problem. Honestly, the, the, the route up Mount Everest is littered with snicker bar wrappers, and it's just so cold and so stressful being up there that nobody can actually spare the energy to collect them up and bring them down. But, um, it, yeah, there's littering up there, and that's because so many people go up there. Well, the question is obvious. If so many people go up there, why did none of them do it before May 1953 and become famous instead of Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay? What, what's the difference? Why is it now easier? Well, there have been numerous studies on that. Uh, is it that people have better food, they're stronger, they're more acclimated? None of that holds any water. It turns out, at the end of the day, there is only one explanation for why Hillary and Norgay were so great for doing what they did and why today it's become commonplace. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying anybody could do it, but... Uh, you know, it costs about fifty thousand dollars to uh, to to join an expedition and to uh, be taken up. They joke that it actually only costs one thousand uh, dollars to be taken up to the top of Mount Everest. But if you want to come down again, they charge forty nine thousand for the descent. And uh, but that's it. It's a, uh, and there are a lot of people for whom it's a sort of uh, vanity achievement. They want to do it. Fine, wonderful. But what's the big difference? The difference is that uh, before. Hillary and Norgay, nobody believed that it could be done. By the way, a year later, something very similar happened, which uh, is, again, something I like talking about, was uh, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile for the first time. How many college athletes have done it since then? Hundreds. You know, why? Is there a, a physical explanation? No, only a spiritual explanation. And that is prior to Roger Bannister in May 1954, nobody believed that the human being could do a four-minute mile. As a matter of fact, um, I've seen the Pathé newsreel footage of Roger Bannister breaking the tape at 3.59, and uh, the newscaster s says, oh, he's dropped to the grass, and at least he died doing what he loved doing. The doctors were right, and sure enough, the medical community had said running a four-minute mile was impossible for a human being, and uh, Bannister did throw himself down to the grass after he broke the tape. The trouble is that, uh, well, it was not a trouble, happily, uh, a minute later, he jumped up and ran a, a victory lap uh, to the consternation of the newsreel reporter who didn't quite know what to make of it. But yes, uh, perfectly understandable. Everybody assumed it couldn't be done. Why do so many people today do it? Because we know that it's doable. That's what makes all the difference. And uh, optimism gives you that boost. Optimism tells you you can do it. And I'm not talking about a cheap self-psych session where you, I can do it, I can do it. No, because anybody of substance 
um, finds it difficult to buy into that. Uh, you, you don't really believe that at all. You know, you might say it, it might give you a temporary boost, but to be truly optimistic about the prospects of a project um, is an entirely different, um, it's, a, it's an entirely uh, different story and something that is, uh, is, is very, very interesting. Um, among the things that change when you're feeling optimistic is your voice. And uh, we're not always aware of that, but the people to whom you're talking are acutely aware of that. What are the changes that your voice uh, make when you're optimistic or when you're not optimistic? Tell you that coming right back. Uh, the website again, and do visit it, rabbidaniellappin.com. Make sure you're signed on for Thought Tools. I, I think there's, there's value in that, and it's free. Um, and also, you have a chance to visit my store. Uh, the store is where I put on sale uh, products, resources, audiovisual, as well as books uh, that delve more deeply and more effectively into the topics I discuss on the podcast and uh, provide you with the, the tools to actually implement these things in your life. So head over there and um, get yourself something that can make an enormous difference, that can literally transform important areas of your life. RabbiDanielLappin.com and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Don't go away. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapp. Jay Severin. We're wondering whether it isn't the right time to be encouraging in every way we can the anything, anyone but Clinton movement, which is seemingly forming in the Democrat Party and among independents and among Republican women who hitherto were prepared to vote for her. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. We're back. This is episode 17 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for being a part of it. I really do appreciate you listening and uh, my deep optimism that you are, in fact, listening is, quite frankly, what makes it possible for me to speak into a microphone, um, as I do in preparing these podcasts for you. So uh, here we go with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, the third segment of uh, this episode 17, where I will continue, as always, trying to replace life's perplexing predicaments and puzzling paradoxes with its permanent principles. And one of life's permanent principles is that optimism is a vital tool for successful living. And like any other tool, uh, you need to know where to acquire it, you need to know how to maintain it, and you need to know how to use it. One of the aspects of uh, confidence is, excuse me, of uh, optimism, and I said confidence because they're very closely linked for obvious reasons, but uh, one of the important factors of, uh, of optimism is the impact it has upon your voice. Now, uh, voice is something we don't always, we're not always aware of. Do you remember perhaps the very first time you ever heard your voice on a tape recording? Do you remember how you thought to yourself, I don't sound like that, do I? And of course... 
<laughs> you actually do. It's just that you're not aware of that because when you hear yourself, you're not only hearing the sound waves carried by the air from your mouth to the outside of your ear, but you're also hearing uh, your voice, the vibrations being carried through the bones in your head uh, all the way directly to your inner ear. And so uh, things do sound a little bit different uh, from the way other people hear you. And, and, and that's uh, something we should be aware of uh, because knowing how you sound uh, is, uh, is valuable given that your mouth is one of your most important organs for both social and business connection. Our ability to communicate with other people, to articulate an idea, to sell a project, a concept, or a product, all of these things depend upon your voice. And part of your ability to communicate, um, obviously, is, is vocabulary and, uh, and your ability to speak fluently and clearly. But at the same time, it's also the timber of your voice. What do I mean by that? Well, when, uh, when you are feeling pessimistic, when you're feeling gloomy, when you're feeling a little hopeless and down, subtly your voice carries that as well. And several things happen. One of them is you, the pitch of your voice rises. You start speaking uh, with a slightly higher uh, tone. A second thing that happens is that uh, you start speaking from high up in your uh, throat and mouth, not from your stomach. You, you're not putting the air out from your stomach as you should be doing, but it's coming out from your mouth. And that also helps to drive the, the pitch up a little bit high. Uh, another thing that happens is that uh, you speak a little bit too quickly. And uh, sometimes you can even sound a bit whiny. And my friends, all of these things are disastrous for effective communicating, as I say, romantically, socially, and uh, financially, business-wise. When you're feeling optimistic, almost automatically, these things get cured. But even if they don't get cured automatically, when you're feeling optimistic, somehow or another, you're better able to focus on them. And you say, and you say to yourself, I don't, if, I don't need to speak quickly. And uh, when you're not speaking quickly, you can think about, well, now I can drive the air out from my stomach, from the diaphragm, not from my mouth. And that, and that helps. I sound better. And wait a second. Am I sounding whiny? Well, look, bottom line here is your biggest friend is what I call a tape recorder, although, of course, uh, today I dare say that, that most teenagers have absolutely no idea what a tape recorder actually looks like, um, in the same way that uh, most teenagers do not know what a Rolodex looks like. It's just, you know, it's, it's not part of their experience, and, and most people their age and the, and the generation up from them are, are using... Um, contact lists and address books on, on their computers or on their mobile devices. And so the idea of a Rolodex makes, uh, makes absolutely no sense to them at all. In fact, one of the most remarkable uh, examples of the development of technology 
uh, was highlighted for me by a, a brilliant friend of mine who actually teaches school in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he, um, he wanted to show his students how the life of a realtor had changed in, in a very few short years. And he showed them how a realtor used to carry a Thomas Guide. You might remember, <laughs> you remember a Thomas Guide? Thomas was the publishing company that produced very detailed street maps of, uh, of every city in the country. So if you were a, a realtor, in your car you carried a Thomas Guide. If you did have a mobile phone in those days, and most people didn't, uh, and I'm talking about the, the 80s, it would have been a very large device. I did have one, and it weighed, um, weighed about five pounds, and it put out three watts of power, and um, uh, it, was, it was like a brick. It was, it was a big thing. And, uh, but most people, most people didn't have them. If you were a realtor then, you used public telephones. And, uh, and then a Rolodex, of course. Well, he showed how all of these functions were supplanted by a phone, <laughs> by a cell phone. Uh, really, just a, re a remarkable indication of, of just how it is that, that things have really changed. So when I say tape recorder, you know, I got one for my bar mitzvah when I was 13 years old. And it was, it was a big deal. I mean, oh, man, my friends were jealous of me. My siblings couldn't believe it. Got a tape recorder, and, and it, it was reels. You know, the tape went from one reel to another. It was the easiest thing to get the tape messed up. I'm talking reel-to-reel -reel tapes, right? Uh, after that came uh, cassette recorders, of course, and, and they were incredible. And, in fact, uh, I think many people still use them to this day. But for the most part... Um, a, a tape recorder is a term for something that actually is no longer a tape recorder. As a matter of fact, for the purposes I am recommending to you, uh, you may as well just use the voice recorder app on your uh, cell phone. It works just as fine. My point is that you need to start getting used to how your voice sounds. And, uh, and before you're about to do a sales presentation or before you're about to um, explain something or sell an idea to somebody – do it on the phone. Do it to the uh, do it to the recorder, and then listen afterwards. And listen if you're speaking a little bit too quickly. Speaking a little bit too quickly, it telegraphs a message of uncertainty, lack of confidence. Uh, high pitch makes you sound like a supplicant. And here's the problem with sounding like a supplicant. When you sound like a supplicant, it makes people uh, want to activate or trigger their instinct for flight. Because a supplicant is going to ask you for something. Now, again, most of us are generous. Most of us try to, to be warm-hearted and to give anybody we can a hand up. But in general, that takes an effort. For the most part, when somebody is about to ask you for something, your protective instincts rise up and a, a barrier is erected. It's one of the reasons that agents work so well. It's one of the reasons that, uh, that uh, somebody coming to suggest a piece of real estate for you to purchase, much better that that person is not the seller of the real estate. It works much better, much better if it's a, an, a go-between, an agent. And that's why there still remains an incredibly important role for uh, agents in contemporary commerce. And so uh, you want to test your voice. You want to see how it sounds. You want to make sure you don't sound like a supplicant. 
And uh, all of this is not worth doing if you have not already taken care of the optimism angle. We got to deal with the optimism thing. Got to get that done. So um, that's what uh, we're going to do, and I'm going to give you the practical tools for enhancing your own optimism. Now, if you're already a very optimistic person, well, this will probably make you even more optimistic. If you're not optimistic, you really need to fix that. You know, it's like somebody who needs to lose weight. If you, if you don't have an optimistic impulse in you, you need to develop that. It'll, it will make a transformative difference in business and relationships. There's no question about it. And um, uh, when we come back, well, what I have to explain is uh, just to what a great extent we are shaped by the spiritual. In other words, the question is, what would have to change in another person for you to no longer regard them as the same person? Um, do you know how many components there are on a Boeing 737 airliner? Well, uh, I'll tell you coming back, and I'll also tell you why you should care. Why does it matter? All of that uh, as soon as we come back. My website, and I keep reminding you this because uh, uh, I, I value it. It means a lot for me for you to visit my website, comment, uh, communicate with me, and all of that can be done at the website. Also, subscribe to my free weekly email thought tools, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Some people prefer the easier to remember, you need a rabbi.com. And there, all you have to remember is rabbi is spelled with two Bs. You need a rabbi.com, and uh, I would very much appreciate being able to connect with you through that website. Don't go away. Your radio rabbi, just like General Douglas MacArthur, will return. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Think about where you can actually draw these lines. Now, I know this from people who jump in and they say, hold on a second, well, what about people who are involuntary committed? Right, that's already a law. What about people who are you know, convicted of domestic abuse? I mean, there are laws about these things already. And perhaps those are the sort of very basic, if you want to call them common sense gun control laws. Those seem to already be in place. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody. And uh, here we continue uh, episode 17, fourth segment of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks very much indeed for being part of this. And uh, we're talking about uh, optimism. And uh, I said I would tell you why I mentioned Boeing. Well, the uh, Boeing 737, surely one of the most successful airliners ever produced, started building them in uh, 1966. So it's been a long time. Um, now, uh, can you find uh, a Boeing 737 that's been flying for 40 years well, you see, here's the interesting thing. Maybe yes. However, it probably doesn't have any of the original parts. What do I mean? Well, uh, Boeing 737 is built, or I should say perhaps assembled, really, uh, near Seattle in the state of Washington out of over 350,000 parts, plus 
about another 300,000 fasteners, bolts, screws, rivets, things like that. And uh, the whole thing is, is, is held together and uh, all the components fit perfectly. So perfectly, of course, that it can be pressurized when it flies and no air escapes. So it's, it's like airtight when, uh, when everything's closed up. It's a pretty remarkable piece of machinery. Now, here's the thing. The, uh, the, the usage of an airplane depends not only on hours in the air, hours of flying, but also on pressurization cycles. Every time it takes off and flies and then lands is a pressurization cycle. And that puts an enormous amount of stress on uh, every part of the plane. And so there are rules that are issued by Boeing, the manufacturer, and that are followed and enforced by the airline and by inspectors from the FAA. And uh, the bottom line is that uh, when pieces experience or are due to experience metal fatigue, they get replaced. So in theory, now you probably won't find this uh, in the United States with any commercial airline but uh, in other parts of the world, and I've, I've seen uh, a plane like this in Africa, that is, this one was 46 years old, and it probably did not have a single original component. But it was the same plane, right? So how does that work? Every single, every single piece of metal on that plane had been replaced with a new piece Precisely matching, of course, uh, but the original piece that was installed, and this is landing gear and wings and mechanisms and pumps and machinery, let alone the engines, obviously. But we still called it, we still call it the, the same airplane, right? Now, how's about um, people, right? We do the same thing, don't we? All the cells in our body are constantly being replenished and old ones are dying off and, we, and, and, and they go away and new ones are made all the time. So in a sense, you know, if, if you got married, shall we say, 15 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit more, it's possible that there's pretty much no part of your body that is the same, the same part as was there when you said, I do, 15 years ago, all the cells. So when your beloved spouse says, I love you, does he or she mean the you <laughs> that is now or the one that was there? And the answer is, it makes no difference because your identity has nothing to do with the physical parts. Your identity is something else. And so when uh, somebody says to you, I love you, they're not referring to a particular set of cells. They are referring to what? Your appearance? Well, I think perhaps not even that. Because, uh, you know, there are, are many cases of people having plastic surgery or people having reconstruction after an illness or after an accident, and they end up looking very, very different from the way they looked, you know, a little earlier. And yet the people in their lives who love them still love them. So 
it's not the cell structure and it's not appearance. So what is, what is the you that people love when they say, I love you? What is that? Well, you gotta, gotta think about it. And, and on its most basic level, I want to say it's two M's. It's memory and morality. It's memory and morality. So if, uh, and this is one of the, the reasons why memory diseases are so debilitating and, and so shattering to, to family relationships, because all of a sudden there, there is this uh, person you, you love and you've lived with, and then all of a sudden they don't remember you. All the shared memories you had have vanished. And at that point, it's like really difficult. Like, who, who is the person? And so some of the identity gets damaged. It's, it's very, very hard to deal with. How about morality? Well, what happens if this person you've lived with and been married to for 15 years and you've loved for 15 years and now, all of a sudden, one day, um, he or she comes home late and you say, where have you been? And uh, with an evil chuckle, the response is, just robbed a bank. And uh, you say, what? Yeah, just seemed like a good idea. Needed some money. But you never would have done, well, I've, I've just changed a little bit, but I'm, I'm still the same person you've always loved. And you say, you know what, wait a second. I'm not really sure you are, really. And that's why uh, it's... The, the identities, the, the thing that, that, I, that, that specifies the person, it's nothing physical. It's something spiritual. That is who we are to other people, and it's who we are to ourselves. Our consciousness is two things, our memory and our sense of morality. And that's why it is that our ability To effectively do what we do depends so much on our spiritual conditions. And so when a spiritual condition like pessimism or optimism goes one way or the other, we are enormously impacted. Our spiritual condition is paramount. And here's the thing. When we're talking about matters of the soul as we are now, these cannot be rectified by a plaster or a Band-Aid or a, or a tablet or a medication. No, we're talking about the soul. And with every other part of the physical body, we can easily come up with some kind of uh, practical uh, medical solution. But when it comes to a soul issue, like I'm not sufficiently optimistic, there is no biological cure. There's no ma medicine or Band-Aid or tablet or pharmacological solution. No. We have to find a spiritual, nothing but a spiritual solution. And that's what we try and do. And, and we do that by coming up with the behavior that stimulates the optimism reflex. We do it by coming up with the behavior that triggers exactly what we're looking for here, which is optimism. How do we do that? Well, that's what I want to tell you. There are very specific things that we do 
that can bring about the optimism we need. What are they exactly? Well, that's exactly what we'll start with right after this quick break. And you know what's coming now, right? <laughs> you know that just before we cut to the break, you know that I remind you of my website. And by now, you should know it by heart. You need a rabbi.com. Go on. When I see that everybody who listens is subscribed to Thought Tools, I'll stop bugging you. All right, I hope, I hope you don't feel I am bugging you. All righty, uh, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, quick break and come back. What exactly are the behaviors that trigger optimism? Very valuable, very necessary, I'll tell you. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. Always question yourself the most, then question others. But if people make you question yourself, then we can be thankful for them, even if they do it in ways that are unpleasant. It's been said before, and I'll say it again, it is the speech that we most disagree with that we have to fight most passionately to protect. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. I am your rabbi, revealing how the world really works, and we're speaking about uh, optimism, uh, how to generate it, what sort of behaviors trigger optimism. And clearly, uh, as I laid out for you a little bit earlier, given that we are primarily spiritual creatures, um, driven by and, uh, and in general motivated by spiritual factors, much more than physical ones, we need to know exactly what are the, the behaviors that trigger the optimism that we need, that we desire. Well, uh, let's first of all ask ourselves, what, uh, what causes the opposite of optimism? What brings about a sense of pessimism? Well, uh, most importantly, and you might, you might laugh at me, uh, on, on this one initially, but uh, I urge you to, to contemplate and, and spend a few minutes thinking about it, and I, I think you'll come to see what the issue here is. Chiefly, it is a sense of moral unworthiness, and what that contributes to is uh, deep down within your soul is a, an all-pervasive um, uh, feeling of I don't deserve this. I don't deserve better. I don't deserve good things. And if you don't deserve good things, then why should they happen? And why should you feel optimistic? On the contrary, you'll feel pessimistic, which is exactly what you should be feeling. But um, th th there's another part of to it as well. That's, and that is that um, uh, receiving charity is unpleasant. It's painful. Uh, it's frankly very hard to be optimistic when you're on the receiving end of charity. What's there to be optimistic about? And, uh, and this is one of the reasons that it, it usually makes us very happy to pay off debts or to pay bills, uh, you know, as long as you have a few dollars in the account when you're writing the checks. But if you do, 
Uh, don't you generally feel good about discharging an obligation that you're paying it off? You're now no longer feeling indebted. You're no longer feeling that you're in any way a charity recipient. And when we are, uh, we end up feeling a little bit negative. So uh, what, what, what happens is that uh, when you are the recipient of good – that uh, for, for which payment is neither expected nor possible, where you have benefited and uh, no payment is involved, that also leaves you with a deep lingering sense of, I'm not paying my way. I'm, I'm, I, I'm getting things for nothing. I'm a charity recipient. What am I talking about? Well, uh, it could be things like uh, that fantastic sunrise you happened to catch the other morning because you had an early meeting, and so uh, you went out early, and you were just in time to see that beautiful orange glow above the eastern horizon, and it just it just filled you with a sense of beauty. How lovely that is! Or, or uh, you bit into an apple at lunchtime, and it was an unexpectedly fantastic apple, um, or uh, you received a, a kindness from a stranger, and. Uh, this this happens, you know. Um, I I've, I used to travel from time to time with the the late great Zig Ziglar. Uh, we were we were very close, very dear friends, and uh, and as I am with uh, his wonderful son Tom, who leads the the Zig Ziglar organization today in Dallas. And uh, when Tom's dad, the late Zig, and I uh, would travel, I used to be amazed. I learned so much from how much he thanked people all the time. And uh, he'd go out of his way and uh, it, it, saying the sort of things that many people would be embarrassed to, to say. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd stop on his way off a plane and, uh, and stop when he came uh, by the, the stewardess or the other cabin attendants or whatever. And, and he'd pause for a moment and say, I just want to thank you for taking such wonderful care with us. I, I watched you being so meticulous about everybody's needs, I learned a lot from watching how you took care of everyone on this flight. Thank you. You know, now most people would be sort of embarrassed to uh, to, to sort of come up with with such a, a lavish greeting and, and an expression of appreciation, but not Zig. And uh, what's going on here? Well, Zig Ziglar was one of the most optimistic people you could ever hope to meet. And part of it was this. What makes you feel optimistic about the world? Well, discharging obligations. Receiving kindnesses or benefits for which you haven't paid and cannot pay leaves you with a slight sense of um, uh, unworthiness. You know, you've, 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 you've got something for nothing. The way you pay, the way you discharge that obligation is, well, that's right, yes, with a, with a lavish expression of gratitude. And that is the first of the two terribly important behaviors that trigger a sense of optimism within ourselves. And so I would uh, strongly recommend that you put yourself into the habit uh, of thanking people. In fact, you really ought to have some kind of uh, a way of marking them off. I'll tell you what I did uh, when I was trying to train myself to do this. Uh, I used to put five little pieces of cardboard, 
basically I cut an index card that I always have with me. Every morning I've cut the index card into five uh, little strips, keep them in my pocket, and each time I thank somebody, uh, I uh, would throw one of them away, get rid of it. And the that way, whenever I put my hand in my jacket pocket, I'd feel whether I still have any <laughs> little... I know it sounds, <laughs> it sounds silly, and I'm almost embarrassed telling you about it, but I needed a way to... Um, to, to monitor myself and to train myself to thank five people a day. And uh, today I, I'm, I'm happy to tell you I do it almost unthinkingly. I, I, I just I, I get pleasure out of, out of thanking people. I get pleasure out of the, uh, um, the, 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 the look of surprised delight that creeps over their faces uh, because so few people do this. But uh, the fact is that although it makes the recipient feel great, and I'm always happy to make other people feel good, that's nothing compared to the way it makes me feel. And the same, obviously, will be exactly true for you. And that is that expressing appreciation and gratitude is a portal to optimism. It triggers a flow of optimism in your heart and in your mind, it makes you feel absolutely great and prepares you for everything that you've got to deal with coming up. The other aspect of it is, you know, in terms of a sense of, of moral unworthiness and the sense of I don't deserve it, it's always good if you find yourself a little bit down, you find yourself feeling pessimistic. This isn't going to work. I don't know why I'm even putting this effort into this. Uh, this isn't going to. This isn't going to be good. It's not going to work out well. What you do is um, embark on uh, some, uh, some, something on your to-do list, something that's been on your to-do list, something you're not looking forward to, uh, something, a tough task, something that has to be done. Just do that. Finish it. Achieve it. Drive yourself to do that. You will then be rewarded by this, this flood of optimistic feeling. It, it can be anything, you know. Maybe, uh, maybe it was that you um, uh, you've been telling yourself that uh, you have to to run a mile three times a week, and you've done two, and it's coming close to the end of the week. You just do that, do that, uh, or or it's it's some household chore, or or it's a phone call you haven't wanted to do, or it's uh, uh, some some something that's sort of been backed up because you really, really don't enjoy doing it, you didn't want to do it, just make yourself do it. And uh, that is the second behavior that triggers uh, a sense of optimism. So those are the two things. Those are the two things that uh, you definitely want to start trying to practice. Expressing appreciation and gratitude on a, on a regular basis. Start off with five times a day. Sounds like a lot. It really isn't because if you just watch you know, try tomorrow, you'll be amazed. In anybody's life, if you in any way are not a hermit and you're, you're, you're living a real life, uh, there are at least five encounters a day you will come across uh, where a thank you is in order. And then the second thing is make sure you, you tackle something that's been waiting for your attention. Tackle something you know you're supposed to do, you just haven't wanted to, just do it. And, and that too gives you much more of a sense of moral worthiness and uh, helps you do very, very well indeed, um, very successfully. Uh, quick break. Website, yep, you know, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. I will be back in just a moment.
There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Chris Salcedo. There's so much angst and consternation, in my view, is that Donald Trump and the outsiders are dominating the field, and it makes the political establishment very, very nervous. This is, as I said, all of this stuff's going to work out in the wash. We're four months out before any voting starts. We've got the time to explore these issues. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everyone. We're back. Your rabbi, me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, insisting that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And uh, the human being's dependence on optimism never changes. The, uh, the ability we have to function effectively is enormously enhanced if we're able to maintain an optimistic outlook. And that's why I've been devoting this uh, entire podcast to the topic of optimism, uh, what it achieves, and how we can trigger its uh, presence in our beings. Now, the problem of pessimism does not only afflict individual human beings like you and me. It actually also afflicts societies, groups, nations. And there, its consequences are even more baleful, even more catastrophic. What I mean by that is that when an entire group of people, when a society or a nation begins to be suffused by pessimism, uh, several things happen. One of them is that fertility drops. Now, I think that uh, everyone is aware that one of the lies that a number of European countries told themselves, and you know, telling a lie to other people is bad enough, but when you tell a lie to yourself, it's really bad. And when you actually believe that lie, oh my goodness, it's terribly serious. And uh, I don't know if the Germans believe it, I don't know if the uh, French or the uh, Swedish believe it, but the lie that they're telling themselves is that, oh, all this immigration is wonderful because the fertility rates are down so far in these countries that the arrival of all these eager workers will restore the economic foundation of the welfare system because right now the number of people that are working is dropping while the number of people at the upper end of age that are going to need the services is growing. All right, well, uh, leave aside for the moment that uh, we don't really know for sure <laughs> that uh, the stream of angry young men screaming for entitlement, hurling feces at, uh, at the locals and uh, threatening pharmacists who want to actually be paid for medicine, we don't really know for sure that these angry young Muslim males um, are desperately eager to fill the assembly lines at BMW and Audi and Volkswagen and Mercedes, 
that are being so rapidly depleted of solid German workers because of retirement and not enough new people coming in. We don't really know that this crowd of migrants is truly eager to play their role in the German workforce. But uh, I think one thing we do know for sure is that they are telling the truth when they speak about their fertility rate going way down. And that's true for all the European countries, most conspicuously for the ones that America speaks of so admiringly, uh, the Scandinavian countries. Well, the Scandinavian countries have been practicing, as has Germany, for decades already, all the so-called family-friendly policies that democratic politicians have been promoting so aggressively in America. Uh, leave, parental maternity leave, not just for women, but for men as well. Uh, and, and this gets passed into law that a company has no option. Uh, you can't even decide whether you wish to hire women who are likely to get pregnant. You have to, and when they do, you have to give them off paid maternity leave. Uh, maybe that is good business, maybe it isn't. But that surely shouldn't be for the federal government to be deciding. But nonetheless, I digress. The point is that uh, these family-friendly policies are designed to enable people to continue working while still having children. Well, they don't appear to have done very much in the Scandinavian countries. They don't appear to have done very much at all in Germany. And so these countries that have been practicing these uh, welfare policies, so-called family-friendly policies, for decades are precisely the countries that are suffering a dearth of population. They're precisely the countries that are not uh, having children. And uh, it's hilarious. I mean, Denmark is, uh, is promoting a, a number of government and privately run campaigns on television to encourage people to have more children. But why should they need encouragement? They, the government has already made it so easy. Well, my friends, let me express it uh, very, very directly. Fertility is a function of faith. People who have faith have children. People who don't do not. And uh, since Germany, Scandinavian countries, France, Britain, even Italy, are essentially in a post-Christian era. It is not in the least bit surprising that they are reproducing at a below replacement level. And so uh, you can uh, take it from me. Remember you heard it first on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. Uh, these migrants pouring into Germany, um, yes, they will soon be bringing their uh, families to join them. So the initial figures, for instance, for Germany of between 800,000 and a million um, will be more than doubled because German law allows them to then reach back and bring their families with them. And uh, these families will generally be fairly large, I can assure you. So the numbers are going to be very big. Uh, you can also be certain that uh, there is no reason at all to believe that this uh, group of mu Muslim migrants um, have any intention whatsoever in throwing themselves into the Germanic culture of hard work and productive endeavor. Uh, no reason to believe that. So uh, we're actually watching Western Europe commit suicide 
But again, I digress. The important thing, however, is to remember that uh, fertility is a function of faith. In other words, people who are optimistic have children. People who are not do not. In general, the left tends to believe in a, a horrible future, a future characterized by destruction, hopelessness, and oblivion, uh, a future characterized by global warming or nuclear winter or climate change and rising ocean levels, washing away the beaches. Uh, all right, fine. Uh, there's, there's enough reason to dismiss that as nonsense, but uh, scientific fact can do absolutely nothing when people are in the grip of religious hysteria, and that's precisely what's going on there. The point is that the left is, and whether that's the left in American academia or American politics, or whether it's the left in uh, the European economic community, EU, it doesn't make any difference. People on the left generally are pessimistic about the future. Uh, the result is they're not having children. It's, it's an absolutely reliable formula. Uh, it's, it's, you can count on it. But uh, people who are religious, and, and here uh, I have to include even also the religion of Islam, uh, but religions in general, tend to produce uh, faith in the future. Optimism is nothing other than faith in the future, right? That's what it means. And so, not surprisingly, whether people are, are Latter-day Saints or Orthodox Jews or Evangelical Christians or deeply committed Roman Catholics, um, or for that matter, interestingly enough, even Muslims, uh, the, the result is fertility. They do have children. And so there you've got one example, a serious example, of a problem of what happens when pessimism infects an entire society. Uh, but it gets worse than that. What else goes wrong when pessimism infects a society? Well, I'll tell you in just a moment. The website, do I really need to remind you that it is youneedarabbi.com, www.youneedarabbi.com? Uh, please go ahead and uh, review the resources in the store on that website. Uh, you might also check the appearances in the case that I am planning soon to be in a city near you. If that's the case, I'd love to meet. And, uh, and, and finally, if you also will make sure you're subscribed to Thought Tools, our free weekly email providing a spiritual strategy for success. All of that at www.youneedarabbi.com. Your rabbi, back in a moment. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss Pat and Stu. All mass shootings happen in uh, zones that take legal guns out. Mm -hmm. And all mass shootings end when police show up and bring legal guns back in. That's the only reason they stop. Mm -hmm. It's because guns do stop these things. Force does work. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. 
We're back, everybody. Your rabbi, that's me, solemnly dedicated to making certain that the time that you are good enough to invest listening to me enjoys a high rate of return. And uh, the, the way I do that is to give you not only information, but information that you can use, information that helps you sculpt uh, the aspects of your life in the areas of faith, Yes, faith, as well as family, as well as friendships, as well as finances, uh, in the, the most effective and productive way possible. And we're talking about the perils of pessimism. Uh, very problematic in a personal life, just as problematic in the life of, of a society or of a nation. And, and we see that so clearly in everything that is taking place right now in our society. Um, the obsession with climate change, that is a function of pessimism. The, um, the obsession with shortage. Recycling is one of the sacred sacraments of liberalism. I mean, think what would happen if your town uh, would um, send you a Bible. If they decided that every household should have a Bible. Wouldn't it be an outrage? How dare they force their religion on you, right? People would be outraged. Um, I wouldn't, but many people would. But where I do get outraged is where my town foists upon me not one, not two, but three recycling containers. One for glass, one for hair, one for newspaper, one for aluminum cans, one for bottles. Who knows? Who cares? Because I do not believe in recycling. I just don't. Um, at another time, I will tell you how ineffective it is. I will tell you uh, how many cities in the United States waste an enormous amount of money sending around different trucks to collect recyclables from garbage and then end up tossing them all in exactly the same landfill because there's absolutely no economically practical way of dealing with so-called recyclables. So, uh, but there it is. It's a religious system. The obsession with recycling is a sacred sacrament of secularism. And although my city would never send out a Bible to every household, they have no compunction at all about sending out little recycling containers that are supposed to sit in my kitchen, in front of which I'm supposed to genuflect three times a day as I solemnly uh, place my aluminum cans in one of them and my glass bottles in another and my plastic in a third and my newspaper in another. Oh, spare me. But... Yeah, this is nothing, but they're like little altars that make the people who practice it feel virtuous. Uh, look, you know, people sometimes say, I hate to disillusion you. I don't hate to disillusion you. I'm happy to be able to disillusion you, and you should be just as happy to be disillusioned. An illusion is a horrible thing. Life is too short to live with illusions coloring your perspective. The best thing is to be disillusioned. And uh, hard to think of anything that it would be better to be disillusioned about than the entire religion of recycling. But what's it all about? It's nothing other than the practical spread of pessimism. We live in a world of shortage. Look, uh, there have always been the Malthusian naysayers 
And I, I've told you about this before. Um, there, there were those who, who said we're running out of whale oil and we must turn off our lights and we must stop reading at night. And they were right we were running out of whale oil. Of course they were. But very soon after that, in Titusville, Pennsylvania, oil was discovered in the ground and the Standard Oil Company began selling kerosene and America has never been dark since. Uh, people, people worry, you know, people worried about the shortage of copper because everyone wanted telephone lines. Well, we don't use copper for telephone lines anymore. We either use wireless or we use fiber optics, which is glass made out of sand, of which we're not running out just yet. So human ingenuity has always made liars of those who preached shortage. And what we've got going right now, of course, is a, a, a national intense hysteria about shortage. One of the, the best examples of that, of course, is, is energy. Right? Now, it's a strange thing, right? Nobody says you must restrict your coffee intake to no more than three cups a week because we're running out of coffee. No. The answer is the price will go up and more people will plant coffee and uh, they'll supply it. It's easy. You just produce more. There are always people willing to do that. It's good for everybody. Nobody says, oh, we're running out of coffee. Why do they do that with um, wood and paper? Oh, we're running out of paper. It's, it's unethical to use so much packaging. I mean, I crack up when I hear this stuff. There are companies that uh, go to considerable expense to package their products that have to be shipped in more expensive ways, but that appear to use less paper. Why? Because consumers are so obsessed with this religion of shortage that they feel good patronizing companies who, you'll pardon me, package ethically. Extraordinary. The fact is that uh, I understand we're human beings. We're not ch chimpanzees. Uh, we do have a desire to believe that we're living in a way that calls us to a higher purpose. Each and every one of us does. The question is what you're going to make that higher purpose to be. And uh, if you uh, pay homage to the church of shortage, then you are encouraging pessimism and, uh, and you are uh, paying the price. But of course, you're going to feel very virtuous while you're doing it because you're going to be feeling that you're less of an imprint on the planet. You're using fewer resources. And uh, there's a whole lot of foolishness about this because it's virtually impossible to calculate. Uh, I mean, are you really saving the planet by plugging in your Prius uh, or whatever your electric car at the moment is into the outlet? You know, do you think electricity comes from nowhere? You don't think that there are... Uh, power stations burning coal, oil, or natural gas in order to produce that electricity? <laughs> and is that necessarily different from what an internal combustion engine puts out? <laughs> and it's, nobody knows the answer to these things. There may not even be an adequate way of reliably calculating it because the scope is too large. But it doesn't matter. People need to feel virtuous. I understand that. I do get it. But uh, 
But there it is. Why not just plant more trees? Oh, you're using too much paper. Well, just buy more paper. Well, that'll use more trees. Great. Plant more trees. I mean, as it is, there are more trees in the United States now than there were when Christopher Columbus arrived. It's true. We were doing great with the trees. So just plant a whole lot of trees. What's the problem? Well, people feel religious about trees. And uh, again, for, for those of you uh, with a biblical inclination, I will remind you that the Bible speaks of those who worship sunflower plants. No. Poppies, daisies, chrysanthemums. No. Trees. That's right. Because the Bible knows that God implanted within us a tendency to, to relate to trees very powerfully. And in the absence of a Judeo-Christian worship foundation, people will have a tendency to want to worship trees. And that's exactly where we're at now, of course. Uh, it gets even more complicated when we look at water and power. Don't go away as I lay that out for you. I, I hope I'm. I hope I'm not disturbing you too profoundly. I don't mean to, but I do mean to uh, make, as I said, to make your time invested with me as meaningful and as valuable as I possibly can. Website, you need a rabbi.com. Back with you in just a moment. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The Jeff Fisher Show. Buy a car. Get on an airplane. Get married. Purchase a gun. Adopt a pet. Apply for a hunting license. Apply for a fishing license. Buy a cell phone. Visit a casino. Get a prescription. Buy an M-rated video game. What do all of those have in common? The Jeff Fisher Show. Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Back with you in the concluding segment of the 17th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on the Blaze. Does America have a governmental faith? Does it have a national religion? Sure it does. Is it Christianity? Oh, no, not at all. I wish it were, but no, it isn't. Uh, is it Judaism? No. Is it Islam? Well, you may be getting warmer. No, not really. Uh, the national religion of America is secular fundamentalism. That's right. It really is. It is a faith. Uh, it is irrational. It is not science-based. It's not fact-based, although there is a pretense at uh, making it science-based. Uh, but it isn't. Secular fundamentalism is the faith of the government in the United States today. It's the faith of the intelligentsia. It's the faith of the governing elite. It's the faith of the academic institutions. And uh, it is uh, a very problematic faith. It, 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 uh, it does impact the way we feel about certain things. Uh, power is one of those things. Now, again, something I have explained in previous uh, episodes of this podcast. And by the way, um, I do hope that when you have a chance, you will go back and catch up on some of the early episodes where I laid many of the foundations for some of the things we are talking about and some of the things I'd like to be able to talk about in future episodes. But, uh, but one of them is a very special relationship that human beings have with energy uh, because we are a unique species when it comes to energy. Every other creature derives energy only from what it eats. 
we employ external sources of energy. No other creature does that. And so uh, this then becomes a distinguishing characteristic of the human species. It makes us not part of a continuum of biological existence, but something rather special, touched, as I say, by the finger of God himself. And uh, the use of energy is very much a part of that, as a matter of fact. Uh, in ancient Jewish wisdom, there's uh, a discussion of how Adam was terrified of the darkness, and God uh, put his arm around him and said, Adam, I, I have something for you. And God showed him how to light a fire and said, this is your gift. With this, you will be able to prepare food. You will be able to frighten away wild animals. And, uh, and that was the beginning of our relationship with energy. It is a mark of God's grace that we use energy. The, the religion of secular fundamentalism, uh, which of course is uh, reflected to, to an interesting extent by Greek mythology, uh, the reason is because Jerusalem and Athens always stood as the opposite poles um, of the two alternative ways of, of looking at reality, a God-centric view or a human-centric view, a spiritual view or a materialistic view. And of course, in, in Greek mythology, fire was only meant for use by the gods, and Zeus was uh, very meticulous that no mere mortals should have the use of fire, until the heroic human Prometheus came and stole the fire in order to give it to humanity that they could benefit from it. And of course, Zeus captured him and continues to torment him and torture him to this very day. Uh, human beings are not supposed to use energy. Well, not surprisingly, the world of secular fundamentalism wants to punish us for using energy. And uh, how does it do it? Well, uh, they insist on making electricity with wind and with sun. And the truth is that for anybody listening to me who uh, wants to spend a little time with the numbers and a little bit of research, you'll quickly discover that if we covered the entire city of Los Angeles with solar collectors, it still would not supply more than a fraction of what the city of Los Angeles needs. And that's in a sunny climate. Do you have any idea of what it would take to produce electricity from the sun for uh, Minneapolis? Come on. And wind power, you can forget about it, but it doesn't matter. This is part of the religion. There's a shortage. No, there isn't. You can really just go ahead and generate more electricity. It isn't a problem. I get a stupid letter from my power company every month telling me how much more power I use than my neighbors. This is meant to shame me into putting on another sweater and turning down the thermostat? What? But this is the kind of world we live in right now. Pessimism has captured the popular imagination. How about um, one of the most disappointing things? There were a lot of very disappointing things that George W. Bush did. Um, one of them was he signed a bill in 2007 which put an end to the incandescent light bulb. I'm miserable about that. Look, you want to use uh, mercury-filled LEDs? Go ahead, you can. And frankly, I don't have a choice anymore, although I have, <laughs> I have actually imported a, a box of incandescent light bulbs that I'm using. But um, in America today, you can't buy incandescent bulbs anymore. The last factory making them shut down a couple of years ago. Uh, why? Because the government passed the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, 
a horrible piece of federal legislation. It was bad on so many levels. What is it the government's business? Well, because the government is religious in America, and it promotes the religion of secular fundamentalism every bit as fanatically as um, Saudi Arabia promotes the religion of Islam. There is no other example that adequately describes how deeply committed the federal government is to punishing heresy against the faith of secular fundamentalism. And part of the faith of secular fundamentalism is pessimism and hopelessness and shortage, and therefore it's the government's business to make you use less electricity, regardless of what it does for your eyes or your mood or anything. Why wouldn't consumers be able to choose themselves? Did the founders really intend the United States government to decide what sort of light bulbs I should have in my house? Did the founders really decide what sort of shower, that the government should decide what sort of shower head or what sort of toilet tank I have? But that has to do with water shortage. (laughs) Really? Water shortage? Again, contrived, artificial, and totally unnecessary. A water shortage in California, it's not God's doing. It's not a drought. It's that they have multiplied the population of California many times without building any more dams and reservoirs. That's not hard to figure out. But uh, we're dealing with a faith of secular fundamentalism promoted by the government. So we got that terribly awful Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007 filled with enormous amount of pork and rubbish But above all, what it did, of course, is uh, shut down the incandescent light bulb, the genius, the genius of Edison. And uh, and it's a cheap light bulb. You know, you you buy a 100-watt light bulb for like $1.50 when you could. Do you have any idea? Do you know what a 100-watt LED light costs these days? Or these semi-fluorescent? They're expensive. And by the way, this myth that they last forever – don't you buy it. It's simply not true. But we have no choice but to buy it these days. My friends, these are some of the consequences of pessimism. And so um, what I've devoted this uh, show to is doing everything possible to eliminate pessimism among ourselves and uh, perhaps helping those around us. And maybe in some small way, by changing our heart, by changing the hearts of others, we might be able to change the culture. We might gradually begin to be able to get people to get rid of pessimism because if we can replace pessimism with the optimism that uh, is part of what God himself wants us to be filled with, a joy that is the reflection of an optimistic lifestyle, uh, well, let's work on that. Let's try and make that happen. Let's try and help others around us achieve exactly the same thing. I have uh, a number of resources on my website, youneedarabbi.com, where you will uh, find um, even more information on how this can be achieved and what we ought to be doing. And i uh, love for you to be there and make sure that you do benefit from some of that uh, because in so doing, you'll be able to help not only yourself but me also because when we change the hearts of others around us, we change the society, we change the culture, and ultimately – When the culture changes, the politics changes, and hope is restored, 
uh, to what is otherwise a very pessimistic outlook for a very pessimistic nation. But of course, that doesn't apply to you and uh, to those you love. And so with uh, no further ado, I have absolutely no choice but to begin my farewell to you until we're together again next week right here. It is me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.